welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. In what very well may be the last special episode of 2021, I speak with KKTP managing partner Jed Kurzban about his path to the law, managing partner life, and why KISS is an average at best band. Most importantly, I go in for a deep dive with Jed on strategies and best practices for taking and defending depositions, direct testimony and defending cross-examination, and making your case through experts. Jed's quite qualified to speak about such things and comes at it from an angle that's really never discussed on the podcast, because Jed's not an immigration attorney. He's a trial attorney, specializing in medical malpractice and serious organ failure. Therefore, and unlike for many immigration attorneys, for Jed, depositions and experts are professional life and death. Jed actually just published a book about all of this titled How Justice is Served, and he gives us a very helpful taste of that book in this episode. I hope you find the following conversation beneficial. I certainly did. And happy, happy holiday season to everyone. Jed Kurzban, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. I've really been wanting to speak with you for a long time, and I'm honored to be here. And it's not just because you're the managing partner who ensures that the direct deposits go into my bank account. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Kevin. I appreciate it. I think you're doing a great job. And like my favorite band, Kiss, you've had the rest. Now you get the best. (laughs) Favorite band, Kiss, really? Greatest band ever. Kidding me? They're the best of the best. They're not even the best hair band in the 1970s, 1980s. They're not a hair band. They're from the 70s. Hair bands are from the 80s. They're They're, the 70s, and then they went into the 80s. They were so terrific. They moved forward. But all right. You know, I mean, it's the, the best. We're off to a bad start because okay. I do I do think you've undercut your credibility really from the onset, which is we're going to get into that about how creating a narrative and really winning over the audience or the jury is the most important thing. I do think you've failed that from the beginning, but we will try to rehabilitate you as we go on. All right. Let's see what we could do. Thank you for talking to me. We're talking on November 23rd, 2021. Uh, Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. You as well. I hope you have a nice holiday. I want to talk to you. It should be one of your favorite holidays as an immigration attorney. What? what Thanksgiving. Because the pilgrims are immigrants? Literally immigrants come in here, find us a job, feed us, and let's see if we can't make your world better. Oh, there's going to be a lot of things to have to edit out of this one, Jed. All right. So as I mentioned, I I really want to talk to you about putting on witnesses, defending witnesses, cross-examining experts and depositions, because as I mentioned at the top of the episode, you're not an immigration attorney. You're a medical malpractice, personal injury attorney that that is your bread and butter. And so you're doing a lot of this maybe more often than a lot of the listeners on the podcast 
but before we get into that, kind of want to know a bit about your background, if you could talk about it and, you know, about the firm. How is it that a medical malpractice slash immigration firm works? Good questions. So again, thank you for having me. So my father was a trial attorney and I used to watch him when I was younger. I enjoyed watching him sort of prepare and make these arguments. And when I was in college, I write this in my book, How Justice Served, which we'll talk about later, I'm sure. Uh, there's a story in there where my father was in a trial when I was in in college. I came home for the holidays and my father asked if I wanted to come to trial and work with him and help him out. And I was interested in, in seeing what he did. And it was an interesting case. It was an iron worker whose foot got destroyed when a crane ball free fell 100 feet, crushed his foot. And the day before trial, the defendants admitted liability. So the trial was just on damages. The trial went on for about seven days. Closing argument, my father got up there, gave a rousing speech about how this is necessary to keep this plaintiff named Jerry, get him to health, get him recovered. And that the defendant company was so disgusting. They fought this for years. And it wasn't until the day before trial they admitted liability. And now that they finally admitted liability, they still want you to do nothing but give this man pennies. And he threw in the air about 100 brand new pennies that glittered and sparkled. And they fell on the bar. They fell on the table and the floor. And he said, don't let them give him pennies. And he walked away. And I remember watching the pennies shine in the light thinking, I'm so in. This is so what I want to do. The judge screamed at my father, Mr. Kurzban, pick those pennies <laughs> up. How dare you? And my father looked at me. I'm sitting in the gallery. He winked at me and said, pick up the pennies. And so my literally first job in the courthouse was on my hands and knees, picking up pennies, thinking, this is it. I'm in. And I went, I went away to college. I'm born and raised in Miami. I went away to college, but I knew I wanted to live and practice in Miami. So I came back to go to the University of Miami School of Law. I graduated law school in December. I took the bar in February. My first trial was May. I was with the public defender's office for my last year clinical and during that period uh, between graduating and taking the bar and getting sworn in. I was sworn in by a really wonderful man named Joshivis. He was just a great judge. So, Because I, I had a trial two months later from being sworn in. So I did my first trial with my father and we did a Dozens of trials together after that very first trial, which was a great trial in Key West. I've had dozens of trials on my own as well. Uh, starting, he's, you know, my father was sort of my mentor. I tease, he taught me everything I know, what I should do and what I shouldn't do. But he started me at small auto cases when I was young. I built up to medical malpractice cases. And I really kind of developed a specialty in a niche of medical malpractice, especially failure to diagnose organ failure which I do those cases all over the country. And I'm kind of well known to take these cases to trial throughout the states. Um, I've been in eight states trying cases and I continue to hopefully expand. I worked with my father for a number of years. He retired several years ago, maybe about 10 years or so ago. He asked me to start to manage the firm and run the firm. The firm has grown over the years. When I started there, I was the the sixth attorney in the firm. And we're now up to 14 attorneys. So that's how we've grown from when I started to now. I was lucky enough to be able to buy a building with my partners in Coral Gables. Uh, we also have an office in Honolulu, Hawaii. And we now have just opened a San Diego office as well, which is nice. And uh, it's nice to have a presence in Southern California. We actually have always had a lot of work in California. So it's nice we now have uh, an offices there as well. I think picking up pennies is just a fantastic metaphor for the practice of immigration law. So I'm happy that's uh, that has a connection to the Kurzban law firm. But you, you've been speaking about how your father is what got you into law. You're not talking about Ira Kurzban. You're talking about Marvin Kurzban, right? Right. So people don't realize this was actually started by Marvin Kurzban, who was um, a PI lawyer. He really started just as a PI attorney. Uh, his brother and younger brother, Ira Kurzban, joined a few years later to him. Berkeley and went on to become a pretty world-renowned immigration attorney. He's okay. And then I joined the firm in 95. So we had three Kurzbans. Too many. Uh, at that point. It's too and many. We're back down to two Kurzbans. Ira Kurzban 
uh, maybe one of the best attorneys in all of the country. And he is by far, without question, the second best attorney in a law firm. <laughs> I appreciate you're making me blush, Jed. I really appreciate that. Right. Uh, appreciate you saying that about me. All right, so let's get right into it. This immigration attorney wants very much to pick your brain on best practices for depositions, presentation of testimony, and trial strategy. How do you think about all this, and how do you prepare your cases? Anytime you can communicate with others and share ideas, it is of a benefit. And as a trial attorney, and I hold myself out as a trial attorney who's had dozens of trials with juries, jury verdicts, I will tell you that communication is the key in any really successful attorney-client relationship. Attorneys get in trouble when they don't communicate well with their clients. They get in trouble when they don't communicate well with uh, judges. And attorneys can have problems not when, when they don't communicate with the other side. So communication is really the key. And as someone that's done a lot of depositions, I can tell you, most people take depositions wrong. There are very few actual trial attorneys that really try cases because trial takes enormous concentration to present evidence in a way that can be absorbed by people that do not have a background in law or medicine or standards of a condominium community. So communication is key. And I have a lot of tips and tricks of communication that I put in my book. But when I take these depositions, the most important thing in any deposition is full preparation, because only with full preparation can you communicate. If we're going to talk about depositions specifically, most attorneys ask a lot of questions and they do a poor job asking questions because they think their questions matter. Attorneys by right are somewhat egocentric in terms of they want to hear themselves talk and they believe they have answers. Whenever you take a deposition, you should understand you do not have the answers. You want the answers. The way to elicit answers is to communicate with the other side so that they speak, not you. So I tell all young attorneys that work for me, and I have an attorney who she's just terrific, Lauren, been with me almost six years. She's really great. And I tell her all the time at depositions, the questions are irrelevant. I don't care what the question is. The question is only to elicit an answer. Once you have an answer, then you can move to the next question. And so, and so on that, I have run into the issue twofold. One, overall deposition strategy. Yes, you want the answers, but how do you know what type of answers you want? How do you prepare? And then two, and it's bad to ask a compound question. I would never do this in a deposition. Are you not worried that the deponent will provide answers that will harm you at trial? And how do you prevent that from happening? How do you mitigate that? So two-part question. All right. So the first part of the question is you have to be very prepared to be able to get the answers you want. And we'll talk more about it. The second part of the answer is I don't care what the answers are, if they hurt me or not. Depositions are meant to elicit testimony for me to then craft it to be used at a trial or maybe in your case, a final hearing. And that is really the purpose of the deposition. The deposition is not itself an answer to anything. So I don't care if the answer is good or bad for me. I can work around good and bad answers in my preparation for trial or final hearing. So when I go into a deposition, I have four or five questions written on a pad, and that is it. That is all I need. I, need, I, I know I need those four or five questions answered. Everything else is about communicating and following up. So I may ask a doctor, for instance, doctor, tell me why this surgery didn't go the way you wanted it to. And he may say, no, it went just fine. I really like it. Well, then why do we have these problems? Well, what problems are you listening, Mr. Kurzban? So I'll give him the problems because I'm fully prepared in the trial or in the deposition, but I don't have any particular question. My questions are all follow-up to his questions. So I can draw out the answer to its logical conclusion with that witness. And that is a problem that most attorneys have. They're so busy worrying about their next question, they're not listening to the answer. The next question will always be why, how, when, who. You don't have to write those things down. You know to ask those. Your next topic may be of some relevance, but not the next question. 
Do you never have a situation where asking all those questions doesn't get you what you want? I mean, you can go down an entire hour's worth of questions and it doesn't support your case at all. And in fact, it's hurting you. How do you get out of that? Preparation. I know going in what I think this person should or will say based on me reviewing. So in my case, right, I'll do medical malpractice. I'll review 2000 pages of medical records. I've already spoken to my expert and I know why I think malpractice occurred. And now it's a matter of getting this guy to admit or not admit as to what he saw, what he did, why he did it. So there is no bad answer he can give me. The answer is your client was so obese that this was the best result we could get. Okay, that sounds like a bad question, a bad answer. And then my follow-up is, why did you do surgery on a guy that's so obese? Was it life or death? Maybe it was life or death. Or at that moment, would he die if you didn't operate? Like just clearly, you operated on... October 1st. If you don't operate, does he die October 1st? No. All right. So it's not really an emergency. So now explain why you did this on an obese person when you said that is the cause of the problem. So there is never a bad answer if you're prepared in the trial. It's a matter of following up the answer. And even if you don't like the answer, even if the answer is this thing happened, this thing happened, it's his fault, he's obese, I told him to lose weight, he's obese, he's obese. All right, well, at least now I've pinned them down. I know obesity is the issue in the case. So now I can go back and I can do my research and my literature research on obesity because I know that that is the issue in the case of this doctor. So it's not that it's a bad answer. It may not be an answer I like, but now I find literature that says obesity doesn't play a part in you know, an electrocardiogram test. Well, doctor, you keep trying to blame this. Here's all the literature. Literature doesn't agree with you. Sounds like you're just kind of making a defense for yourself. And would you say that combatively in a deposition or would you wait for a trial on that? Trial. Never ask the ultimate question in deposition. It's another thing I teach young lawyers. You never ask the ultimate question. There's an old saying, you take the horse to water. You don't force the horse to drink. If I ask the ultimate question at deposition, whatever answer I get, they're now prepared to answer better at trial. I want them thinking about it. I want them worrying about it. I want them making mistakes, trying to protect themselves, not knowing exactly what I'll ask. The ultimate question is always saved for trial. Now, there are cases where you're taking a deposition to be used at trial, a video deposition for trial. That's different. Then it's like trial testimony. You ask that ultimate question. But I don't like trial depositions. Juries don't like trial depositions. Judges, by and large, don't care either way. They're kind of removed from the case. Most of them don't care. So this is for a jury. My case is a jury. I respect juries. Juries do the right thing eight out of 10 times. They truly do. One out of 10, they're too low. One out of 10, they're too high. Eight out of 10 times, juries do the right thing. The jury system works. So I prepare my cases for a jury. Before we get off depositions, because probably many of the immigration attorney listeners don't take them so often, but when we do take them, it's almost always going to be for a bench trial. In the rare cases, we're putting it in an immigration court or in a federal court immigration case. It's usually going to be a bench trial. Anything different with taking depositions? Because then it's going to be a dry transcript usually um, if they don't testify in court. Anything different in preparation for a bench trial? No. The difference would be if you expect to call them live or if you expect to use the deposition as their testimony, then you would ask the ultimate question. I will tell you that I like to videotape the most significant players in any case. One, it adds a gravity to the situation. Two, tends to make the opponents a little nervous. And three, when you can play a video clip of a clip of someone saying, well, I didn't review that, that's a big deal. And you can play it over and over and over, and I often do. Sometimes I'll play it on a continuous loop and stand in front of it. Just say nothing, just stand there. And let it play continuously loop for a while. And then after it's played six, seven times, maybe then I'll talk over it. What about objections during deposition? What's the point? Are they overused? How do you do it? As a plaintiff's lawyer, I could tell you I'm convinced defense lawyers are paid by objection. They make entirely too many of them. They're mostly irrelevant. Most judges will not strike testimony unless it's blatantly wrong. If there's an objection of form, then a defense attorney says, you know, it's a form objection. If I think it's not a good objection, 
you know, I'll call them out. I'll say, stop, please tell me the form of objection. I want to hear exactly what's wrong with the question and what you think was wrong with the question. I'll put them on the spot. Sometimes that slows them down. If I think they're right, I'll re-ask the question. But for the most part, objections are overused. Judges don't really pay a lot of attention to them. When you edit depositions for trial purpose, you usually cut the objections out. So what's the purpose of them other than to be annoying, to try to confuse the deponent? I really think they're just entirely too overused. If I make five objections in an entire deposition, it'd be a lot. Testimony is going to be the testimony, and you're going to live and work with that testimony. And I always want to know what's going to be said, because I can always work around what's been said, rather than guess what they might say. Any other helpful hints on depositions before we move to trial testimony? Sure. I think when it comes to depositions, the most important thing is to be prepared. So often I see attorneys look at their calendar and say, I have a deposition in three hours. There's no way you're prepared for that deposition. You should know your deposition days in advance. And I don't care if you take work home at night because we're all busy attorneys. But you need days to really absorb all of the information available to be fully prepared to take that deposition. So no fact catches you off guard. No question isn't followed up because you're not sure if it's relevant or not. And that is the biggest mistake I see of young attorneys, quite frankly, and older attorneys, which is they think they can just show up an hour before and look at it, look the file over and take a depot. And that is rarely the case if you want to take a good deposition. You like my open-ended question there to end the depositions? Nice. I should follow up, but I'm not going to because we do have a time limit. All right. So in immigration court, almost never will there be depositions. I mean, we can file subpoena requests with the court, but they're rarely granted. And honestly, the government is going to be very difficult to get them to help your case a lot of the time, but it exists. But what we do all the time is put our client on the stand in court for direct testimony and then have them subject to cross-examination by DHS. And it seems often that DHS might not be so familiar with the file and their entire strategy is to try to make our client look not credible. So what are some best practices for putting your client on the stand and eliciting the case through direct? And then what are some ways to defend cross against your client? It's a very old saying and a very true saying. And I tell this to all of my clients before they take the stand. And that is all roads lead to Rome. Ever heard of that before? I have. I, 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 for the life of me, I can't figure out how that applies to direct testimony. Good. All roads lead to Rome. Most people are familiar with it, and it is historically true for thousands of years. And the reason you use that for direct examination is, first, you discover what your Rome is. In an immigration court, your Rome would be, this is a legitimate marriage, for example, right? If that's your Rome, this is a legitimate marriage, then every question asked is a road back to Rome. So I don't care what they ask you. If they ask you, you know, when did you come to America? It still leads to Rome. I came to America on this date because I love this person and I couldn't wait to marry this person and we got married on this date. I do this job because I want to support my family because I have a beautiful wife and I got married on this date. Every road leads to Rome. In my world of personal injury or medical malpractice, the Rome, depending on who's asking the questions, may be their injury. I have a spinal injury. Well, you know, what did you do for a living? Well, I used to be a carpenter and it was a pretty good job. I was trained as a carpenter. I took carpentry in high school. I really loved it. But unfortunately, because of the spinal injury, I can no longer be a carpenter. Well, what did you do after you were injured? Well, after I got injured, I went to three doctors. I did follow-up. I really want to get better. But the problem is because of my spinal injury, there's nothing more I can do for a living. Who else knows about your spinal cord injury? I told my wife because she has to take care of me because of my terrible spinal cord injury. And then my wife's mother, she often comes over and helps make dinner and watches the kids, which I used to do at night, but I can no longer do that because I have a spinal cord injury. Spinal cord injury. Ever you are Rome is, all roads lead to Rome. And people tire of asking questions if they see every question they ask goes back to Rome. And that is how you prepare a good witness for direct examination. But you're talking about cross, really, right? Talk about direct as well. Because my direct exam is elicited to make sure Rome is discussed nonstop. So my direct exam may be, 
Please tell me about your spinal cord injury. Since your spinal cord injury, what have you been able to do? How has your life changed since your spinal cord injury? What is your marriage like since your spinal cord injury? Are you able to go to soccer games and play with your children since your spinal cord injury? All roads lead to Rome. And with that very simple saying, all direct and cross-examinations can be conducted in a way that you are not impeached. Your credibility is maintained because it's very easy once you discover what your Rome is to bring everything back to your Rome. And just a caveat for the immigration attorney listeners out there with Jed's marriage hypothetical, that might not always be the best advice. For example, if your client came on a tourist visa, there'd be a big problem if they were always intending to marry their current spouse. But that is a immigration nuance. The point is taken. Again, you're not (laughs) redefining your Rome. Your Rome may be that it was a travel visa. Your Rome may be Right. My entire life, I wanted to see the Grand Canyon. That's all I cared about, the Grand Canyon. I right. went to the Grand Canyon. I came to the Grand Canyon. And this beautiful woman I met at the Grand Canyon, we fell in love. Not because I found a beautiful woman, because a beautiful woman came to the Grand Canyon. And I really love the Grand Canyon. I bought two books about the Grand Canyon. I can't wait to take my children to the Grand Canyon. I mean, now you need to tell me if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon. And did you get a spinal cord injury there? Uh, no, because I did not take the donkey ride. How do you prepare for direct? Do you write out your questions? So I do not write questions for depositions, as we've discussed. For direct examination, every question is carefully created. Every question is curated to make sure I get to where I want to go. And in my mind, all roads lead to Rome. And then I take whatever road I want based on the jury I have. So I will adjust my direct exam a little bit based on my jury once I pick the jury. But no, every question is written specifically a certain way to elicit a specific certain answer. Cross-examination questions are written out specifically to elicit the specific answer I want based on the deposition testimony I have. My cross-examinations will look something like, doctor, you've never treated an obese patient before, page 42, line six. And if they don't agree with that question, I could easily turn to page 42, line six of their deposition. And I can now cross-examine and impeach them because they said that in deposition. Question, page number. Question, page number. Direct exam, there's no page numbers. I'm not impeaching anyone. It's just questions. This is good advice. I certainly appreciate it. You and I have talked about this a lot, and I have appreciated those conversations as well. With an asylum case, for example, the Rome is probably, I guess, the elements of an asylum claim of which, I don't know, maybe there's five or six. So maybe you've got five or six roams in an asylum case. Many of the cases you do, you have as much time, correct me if I'm wrong, as is necessary for you to make your case and for the defense to make theirs. In immigration court, we might only have a four-hour individual hearing. Any advice for getting all of this done in four hours? Sure. When it comes to presenting, the key is to make sure you hit the highlights of the case you need. And since you know what you want, out of your client, because you know your room, and you know what you want out of cross-examination, if it exists, then you want to make sure you go directly to those rooms. You don't need to spend a whole lot of time discussing their background, their education, unless you think for credibility purposes, it's pertinent. You really want to focus in on that room. And if you always think of all roads lead to Rome with direct and cross-examination, which includes trial testimony or presentation in immigration court, then you always know where you want to go. So now the question is, where do you want to come from? So you can speed the process of questioning up. As opposed to state court, where you can meander a bit before you get to Rome. I think that would be the big difference in presenting an immigration court is more identifying where you're coming from because you already know where you want to go because you've been working on this file for months or years So you very much know your role. As I mentioned, for structural reasons and a lot of other reasons, it does seem that opposing counsel, the Department of Homeland Security, their main strategy is often to try to make your client look not credible on the stand, because if they do that, then the immigration judge can disregard pretty much everything and just deny the case based on adverse credibility finding. And to do that, again, some of it is structural reasons. It seems that DHS often tries to trip clients up with dates, specifics, and other information that 
to me, people make mistakes on sometimes, but once you're in court, it can be latched onto as a discrepancy. Besides making sure your client really knows the dates and specifics of his or her claim, what are some good ways to defend against cross-examination? It depends on the sophistication of the client. People sometimes confuse education with sophistication. They're not the same. Well, you went to Alabama, you would know. Go Gators. What does it even mean to roll tide? It seems like something, it seems like a bacterial infection in the ocean that you wouldn't want to even get close to. Let me explain to. roll tide, because a lot of people ask this question, not only from Florida, but from, you know, Georgia or Tennessee. No, or I'm very upset that I asked this question. Okay. And the really easy explanation is the tide is like a wave coming in. This is awful. And when this tide is in crimson uniforms, it becomes a crimson tide. And they roll over things the way a surge, like a storm surge, rolls over beach and beach bags. And everyone else is somewhat hopeless and helpless against this crimson tide. But still, they put up their bags, they do their sandbags, they hope for the best. And in the end, you're left crying and cleaning up. And that's not unusual. Very wise. That's that's What you want to do whenever you decide where to go to college is look for the best. But mediocre works for some. This was a perfect example of never ask a question you don't know the answer to. Then I that that's that's on me. We were talking about defending on cross and how how you prepare your client, and then during cross examination, besides speaking objections, how you get in and avoid an impending catastrophe. So again, sophistication and education are not always the same. You really want a sophisticated client, and then you could ask them to sort of remember dates and facts. If your client's less sophisticated, and most of my clients are, I don't let them get pinned down by those specifics. They will answer, this happened the spring of 2000. Right. The fall of 97. You know, if they say, well, when in the fall? I, you know, I, I gave my my lawyer that information. He has the exact date. I don't recall. It was sometime in the spring. It was sometime in the evening. And I don't let them get more specific than that. And I force the other side to have to stick with these more vague terms of spring or fall or evening or morning. And I don't let them get more specific. And when they get pushed enough, they're coached enough to say, my attorney has the specifics. I just don't know it. It was a while ago. It's traumatic. I'm recovering from these terrible events. That's why my lawyer has that information. I know it was sometime in the spring and that's it. And that is one way to help an unsophisticated client not get trapped by dates or times. I have my speech that I give to clients about answering the difference between answering my questions and the difference between answering the government's questions on cross. What's your speech to prepare them to have help them distinguish that? Well, the first talk we always have is all roads lead to Rome. Right. We sit together and identify our Rome. The second talk we have is they're not to win their case. They've hired me to win their case. That is my sole purpose to win their case. Their job is not to lose their case. If they don't lose their case, I will win their case for them. And I'd imagine it'd be the same for immigration attorneys. Your client was not going to win their case for them. That is up to you to win the case. And if they think they're going to win their case or try to win their case, they're only going to get themselves in trouble. And why is that? Because they're going to overspeak? They're going to overspeak. They're going to overcommit. They're going to expand their Rome beyond what it should be. That is why they've hired me. If they're going to win their case, they don't need an attorney. They're going to win their case. They can just show up themselves and win their case. The fact they spent money to hire an attorney means they need someone to win their case for them. And to not lose their case is a lot easier than to win their case. And how do you prepare them specifically for answering opposing counsel's questions on the stand? Vague times, vague dates. I do not let them give specifics, even if they think they know it. I tell them, so here's an example that I do. I say to them, you know, what is your birthday? And they'll tell me their birthday. And I'll say, you know your birthday. Yes. How do you know your birthday? I know it. If you don't know an answer as well as you know your birthday, you don't know the answer. If you could recite it to me immediately with 100% confidence like your birthday, you know the answer. Otherwise, you're guessing and you don't know the answer. Do not give a single answer you don't know as well as your birthday. Yeah. As a talk I have with them every time. 
And then I talk to them about not losing their case. And then specifically in preparation, I will say to them, they're going to ask you questions. You're going to give the best answers you know based on what we discussed. You're not to give more than that answer. You're not to win the case. You're only to give that answer. And if you really, really don't know the answer to the question, then you could say, I don't know. It's up to me, the attorney, to fill that answer in for you. In immigration court, having worked with immigration judges, you know, you might get into a bit of trouble if you're being too vague and if you're only talking about seasons. But for me, I, I, I do the month thing. I try. I mean, they should they, they should be able to know maybe a month and a year. It's, it's a hard walk in immigration because you're not listening. Why are seasons in a year not good enough? The you know, I mean, I think that there are some judges that will accept the month without a date, but maybe not who will accept the season. And that's a very immigration court specific opinion, but it's just my opinion. Yeah. I don't know. Have you ever tried seasons and been told no? <laughs> I have not. The stakes are so high. I mean, look, it's four seasons. I want to talk a bit about expert testimony as well. But before I do, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is because you've continued the great Kurzban tradition of publishing books and your book, How Justice is Served, just came out. It's a great book. It's short, but it's got a lot of information in it. This is the kind of stuff that's in it, right? I mean, why did you why did you write the book in the first place and what's in it? The reason I wrote How Justice is Served is, number one, that is what I believe in lawsuits, right? I, the money is always secondary to justice. It is very rare I ever have a client come in and say, I was devastatedly injured. I want money. Inevitably, they say, I've been devastatedly injured. I want justice. This shouldn't have happened. I don't want it to happen again. I want justice. And the money comes with that. Justice is what we seek. And the book is really made to be a sort of workbook from beginning to end of trial. How do you evaluate a case? How do you prepare a case? How do you litigate a case? And there are very few books that cover sort of beginning to end as a real workbook. And I wanted to create one that people could pick up that wasn't a thousand pages, so it was impossible to read. That was short enough they'd be able to pick it up and read it through, but have the tips and techniques and strategies to help them really prepare and litigate a case from top to bottom. Tricks I don't like. Tricks is a bad word when people say that. There are no tricks in the book. It's really techniques and strategies. And that really is what the book is filled with on how you evaluate, prepare, and litigate a case. But it goes through all three phases. Uh, it's only about 150 pages. So, I mean, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm, I'm about halfway through uh, trying to read it in between reading all these cases for the podcast. It really has sucked up my reading time, but I certainly appreciate it. And I'm happy you wrote it. Well, thank you. No, I, you know, I've had a lot of really good feedback on it. A lot of good reviews, people coming to me and thanking me for it. I will be honest, when I wrote the book, I was writing the book. My wife was complaining I was giving away my secret sauce. As I told her, Everyone knows secret sauce is mayonnaise and ketchup. That's not the that's not the guesswork. The guesswork is how's it used, how's it prepared, and so you still need to be you. And I'm a huge fan, as you can tell. I quote lots of things, um, Star Wars being the most. But I love Popeye, and I am who I am. I have never been a tall, thin man. I don't think I will ever be a tall, thin man. I am who I am, like Popeye, and I had to create how I present the case to a jury. From me, you know, a, a short, thick Jewish guy from Miami whose father's from Brooklyn, and you can't shake the Brooklyn off no matter how hard you tried, even though I was born and raised in Miami. And so I got to present the case in a way that juries are going to respond to me for my clients. I think this book helps anyone be who they are. And obviously, it starts with evaluating a case and is it the right case to take, why to take it. No lawyer wants a bad case because it hurts you, it hurts the client. And so you need to really make sure you spend the time to evaluate your case to take the right case. Thanks, Jen. We'll have a link to the book in the show notes of the episode, as well as a link to your bio. So before we get off testimony, I think all immigration attorneys would agree that for an asylum case, especially and a cancellation of removal case, really an expert is key and an expert should be provided every time. Sometimes that's not possible because of finances. Sometimes that's not possible for other reasons. But we certainly try to put an expert on whenever we can on country conditions, 
risks on psychological harm. Is there any difference between your direct testimony for an expert and defending cross-examination for an expert? So experts generally are very good in a very narrow focused field. And if you keep your expert in their narrow focused field, they can be very effective. A good cross-exam takes an expert out of their narrow focus field. And so when I cross-examine experts, I don't ever want to fight them on their field because I will never know as much as them and I will always lose. So I take them out of their narrow focus field to fight them. In direct exam, I prepare my expert not to leave their narrow focus field. And I will create imaginary fences when I prepare them and say, if you're going to touch this electrified fence, back down. Do not go past these fences because it takes you out of your narrow focus field. And if the other side asks questions outside of these fences, the easy answer is that is outside my scope of expertise for not what I'm here to testify to. And it's rare that a judge will say, well, I want you to answer that anyway. They will allow the expert to create these fences and stay within them. That's good advice. And so besides taking, at least in immigration court, it seems, besides taking them outside of their sphere, the government will also attack expertise in and of itself if they decide to do a voir dire. So we always do a voir dire first. We don't want to waste too much time. What are some good voir dire strategies? So anytime I have an expert, the first thing I do is I take their CV and I run through it with them. Where were you educated? Where have you studied? What have you published? What do you belong to? Once I'm done with that, before I ask a single question, I tender them as an expert in that field. And that way, there's not a lot of time wasted. And if the other side wants to vordar and say, I don't think they're an expert, you've just gone through a 12-minute speech of all the things they've done on their CV, it's very hard to say they're not an expert in that field. Yeah. It's dry. It's a waste of 10 minutes. But from then on, once they're tendered, then the judge is now called them an expert. And there is no stopping you, whether it's a bench trial or you know an immigration court trial or a jury trial to say, doctor, you're an expert. What is your expert opinion? Because they've now been accepted as an expert. Don't skip the voir dire is the advice. And you know it's important on the podcast of the last year, I think I've talked about two Board of Immigration Appeals decisions in which the board is pretty much saying expert testimony needs to be admitted and the fight is going to be at the voir dire stage. So that is what the Board of Immigration Appeals seems to want in immigration court is the fight is over expertise, not whether or not the testimony should be admitted at all. And that's the easiest thing in the world because that's simply, please send me your CV. Yeah. You see a CV that's complete, there's no way they're not an expert. So the easiest thing in the world to do is to get someone tendered as an expert based on a written CV that you got from you know early on and, and went through. So thank you for all that, Jed. How does it work with um, a medical mal, personal injury on one side and immigration on the other? I would think that most immigration attorney listeners, if they have a partnership at all, it's two immigration attorneys or an immigration and a criminal law attorney. How, how does it work? What are some challenges and what are some good aspects of having that structure? So immigration law is, as I'm sure your listeners know, kind of its own hybrid, right? There's immigration cases that are hourly. There's immigration cases that are flat fee. And then there's immigration cases that are sort of a combination of both. Um, and because there's a different pay structure for different cases, money management is sometimes an issue. Together with my side of the firm, which is the torts department or the litigation PI firm, we are contingency-based. So it is an interesting combination. The challenges always exist like any, any business really with cash flow, there are times where immigration attorneys take a case and well outwork the fee that they collect. And that can be a problem based on how many cases you have and what the cash flow will be if lawyers are working and we're not collecting money because they've sort of outworked the case that they've already charged for. Different when it's an hourly case, obviously, but if you only ever worked your hourly cases, you'd be doing a disservice to your other cases. So you have to combine those two. Taken together with me, which is contingency-based, um, our cash flow is very curvy. I mean, it really looks a lot like the Dow Jones chart. There's ups and downs. And the, the challenge is to manage the cash flow during the ups and down period to make sure 
you're always able to handle your overhead and your payroll and have money available to take on new cases and, and fund new cases. And that, I'd say, is really the challenge. The benefit of it is if the immigration department of my firm does a good job and maintains a pretty steady flow of cash, then when the PI side hits, there's large bonuses for everyone available. doesn't always work that way, but the, uh, the objective is to have a steady cash flow from immigration and then have these windfalls when I'm able to be successful in a case. So to summarize, there are never any issues and you love it. Well, immigration attorneys have two main problems. I was going to ask Number you about one, your opinion. I was, I was going to ask you about your opinion of immigration attorneys. Actually, it was my next question. I'm glad we're here. So let me tell you the problem of immigration attorneys. Generally speaking, immigration attorneys care so much for their clients and for doing what's right for their clients and to make America better, which is an entire country based on immigrants, which I have no idea why people are against immigration. It's shocking to me, but they are. But immigration attorneys are generally so insistent on doing a good job for their clients, they sometimes forget it is a business. And they will put in a thousand hours on a case that they flat feed for $2,500. And so sometimes it's hard to remind immigration attorneys there's also a business aspect to what they do. The second issue with immigration attorneys that I have is immigration attorneys very often find ways to try to make it sound like the immigration court is so unfair that they're never expected to win. When I know they're really good attorneys and they could win more often than they say they can, but they become a bit negative at times in thinking the immigration court is always against them. And so, believe it or not, I actually listen to podcasts like the Immigration Review and actually even read ALA opinions on occasion so I get a sense of where the courts are with their cases. And... Um, I have to say the courts are pretty unfair to immigration attorneys. I think it's pretty outrageous that a, a country based on immigration is so against immigration. It's something I've never understood. But on my side of the, the valley, it amazes me that judges don't want to protect individuals hurt by someone else's fault because insurance companies give so much money that the systems become so unfair that it's really quite remarkable people don't want to be protected by the uh, faults or the the injuries of others. So I understand the dilemma. I do believe that you've probably managed to offend all spectrum of listeners with that answer. It really started off with saying immigration attorneys complain too much and then ending with the immigration court is unfair to everybody. And so I do appreciate getting the full spectrum there. Now I'll say, I, and so please direct all your hate mail to Jed at KKTPlaw.com and, uh, yeah, and not me. There are some unfair judges, but also, you know, to me, it's the law. I think Ira would agree the the law that was passed in 1996 and went into effect in 1997 in immigration law, that's largely what is affecting what we can argue in immigration court is the biggest issue that results in the most losses for non-citizens. And that is by design, which is one of the reasons that Ira's political action committee is trying to change that law. So you know, to, to to try and play middle ground there. and comedy. Well, I think there's truth there. I think that's in, in all cases. You know, I would argue that the laws that they created years ago, you know, what they call tort reform is literally just taking people's rights away. That's all tort reform is. It's funded by these mega insurance companies that make billions of dollars of profit. And it's shameful that they're able to pass these tort reforms. I think it is shameful that there are laws they're so restrictive and make it so difficult for immigration attorneys, right? And the problem is there's always going to be people that fake injuries. There are always going to be people that come to America for the wrong reason. No one discounts that. That will always be true. The vast majority of people injured are really injured. The vast majority of immigrants that come to America are doing it the right way for the right reason. And I think that's one of the reasons why you have to fight so hard as an immigration attorney. I mean, the system is unbalanced. And that is because of the laws. And I believe immigration is very much akin to personal injury in that way, which is it is truly unbalanced. And we are fighting the fight that needs to be fought for a man that can't fight for themselves, man or woman that can't fight for themselves. Well, that's one heck of a way to end the interview, Jed. I really appreciate you coming on and, and speaking with me, passing on some of this wisdom that's also available in How Justice is Served. 
which I will finish before 2022. I hope um, so. Absolutely. I make you a better attorney. You're pretty good already. Anything else you'd like to say, Jed? No, I think this is a great podcast. I've listened to it. I think you're doing a great job. I appreciate you having me on. I appreciate the opportunity to allow me to talk to immigration attorneys, which I know is not necessarily my ballyhoo, and they may not necessarily think that I can offer much. But again, I started this, and I continue to say communication is the key to any of these successful cases, whether it's PI or immigration. And the better you are communicating, the better you are at learning and preparing so you can communicate effectively, the better you'll be as an attorney. And I wish your listeners good luck and fighting the right fight. Thank you again, Jed, and have a great holiday. All right. Thank you. So there you have it. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, and send us a tweet, at ImReview, that's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.